This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. A couple of episodes ago, I talked about using the extended receive coverage of your VHF UHF transceiver to eavesdrop on aviation traffic, and boy, is there a lot of traffic out there. But you know what I didn't mention was the fact that you can use your HF transceiver to pick up some interesting aviation chatter as well. Now, as you probably know, or maybe you don't, Modern airliners, when they're away from their continents, say away from the east or north coast of the United States in this case, generally rely on satellite communication to stay in touch. However, these airliners still have HF radios, and many of them still use them to stay in touch with air traffic control at the opposite coast, for example. Now, this is especially true when they're flying over the pole because The Inmarsat satellite, which is what many of them use, doesn't really provide coverage north of about, oh, 82 degrees north latitude. So once you get above that, you're kind of out of luck, and HF is the principal means of communication. You can use your HF transceiver to eavesdrop on these transmissions, and you'll find most of them clustered around 5, 9, 13, and 18 megahertz. A lot of it is single sideband, but there is some AM as well. If you want to see a very detailed list of frequencies, there's a place on the web where you can go. Prepare to write this down. It's www.hamuniverse, that's one word, forward slash aerofreak, A-E-R-O-F-R-E-Q dot HTML. And at that page, you'll find frequencies of stations all over the place, not just in the United States, but in many areas throughout the world. I sometimes, for example, listen to Gander Radio, because I live in the eastern part of the United States, and Gander Radio is uh, fairly strong down where I am. Here's a sample of what it sounds like. This is one of their uh, weather broadcasts. Ceiling to 7,000 overcast, temperature minus 5. Repeating 2000 Zulu METAR observations. This is Gander Radio out. So, what are you likely to hear from the planes themselves? Well, you'll hear position reports. Uh, You may hear some curious things too, like updates on passengers or the condition of the aircraft, something of that nature. Sometimes the land based stations will call aircraft using cell calls, selective calling. And you'll hear these tones being sent and then a call from the Continental or from the ground station to the aircraft. It's pretty interesting to listen to. Give it a try sometime. When it comes to checking propagation conditions on the HF bands, many hams these days rely on the reports they get from FT8. Or they might uh, use Whisper, for example, and uh, see where their signals are going and what they're hearing. But there's another system that has been in place for many years, and it relies on good old Morse code. And that's the Northern California DX Foundation IARUHF CW beacons. Now, that's a mouthful, but (laughs) these beacons 
transmit 24-7, and there are 18 of them scattered around the world. By listening to these beacons, you can find out exactly who you can hear on any given band and how well you can hear them. Now, each beacon transmits once on each band, once every three minutes, and it does this 24-7. A transmission just consists of the call sign of the beacon, and that's sent at about 22 words per minute, and it's followed by four one-second-long dashes. And those are the interesting things to listen to. The call sign and the first dash are sent at 100 watts. The remaining dashes are sent at 10 watts, 1 watt, and 100 milliwatts. So this way you can see exactly how you can copy a 100-watt signal, how well you can copy a 10-watt signal, and so on. You can find the beacons on five separate frequencies. 14 14.100, 18.110, 21.150, 24.930, and 28.200. Now don't worry if you can't copy 22 words a minute CW. It's really not a problem. That's because there is a Beacon web page that is really nicely done. Somebody put a lot of thought into this thing. It shows you which beacons are active on any of the given frequencies at any particular time. So if you just look at the web page and then listen to your radio, you can see which beacon you're listening to, even if you can't copy 22 words a minute or whatever they're sending. So here's the address of the web page www.ncdxf.org forward slash beacon. Let's listen to one of the propagation beacons. Did you figure out the call sign and the dashes that followed? Okay, let's listen again. The next time you need a quick check of propagation conditions, give this a try. It's really worthwhile. If you're a regular Eclectic Podcast listener, you know that uh, we follow space activities pretty religiously. And I would imagine that if you've done much searching in space technology news, the word Starlink has probably come up from time to time. Now, this is an invention of SpaceX. Yes, that's the Elon Musk company, the same people that make the Tesla automobile. And what they're doing is they're putting thousands, literally thousands, of satellites into low Earth orbits at about 400 miles altitude, give or take. Now, what are they doing with these? Well, these satellites are going to provide internet access to areas of the globe that are underserved. In other words, uh, sparsely populated areas, rural areas, that kind of thing. But why bother doing this? After all, there are already two players in the internet by space game, and that's Hughes and Viasat, and they've been around for years. Now, they have big satellites parked way out in geostationary orbit, about 22,000 miles above the equator, and they work very well. But the problem is, is that they suffer, because of their great distance, from delays, or in internet jargon, latency. How bad can it be? Well, by the time you uplink to the satellite, satellite processes the signal, comes back down... Well, you could be looking at anywhere between 4 and 600 milliseconds of latency. If you're just browsing the web, that's probably not too bad. But if you're doing things that require quick responses, uh, gaming comes to mind, for example, 
that's a serious issue, and in fact, it could be a deal-breaker. In contrast, the Starlink network, once it's fully up there and deployed, will have latencies on the order of only about 25 to 35 milliseconds, and that's comparable to just terrestrial internet. The Starlink ground stations are going to be, they say, about the size of a pizza box. Basically, it's a phased array antenna that you put outside, and as long as it can see any portion of the sky, you've got a link to the Starlink satellites because there will be so many of them. Again, I'm talking about literally thousands of these things that there will always be one somewhere in view of your phased array antenna. Now, on board the satellites, and they're not big satellites, by the way, they're about 500 pounds, which may seem big, but the satellites at geostationary orbit weigh tons. The Starlink satellites use phased array antennas as well, and so they're electronically steered, if you will. But what is especially clever about the Starlink system is that the satellites share data with each other. It's a little bit like an amateur radio or commercial mesh network, after a fashion. So it doesn't really matter if you can only see perhaps one individual satellite at a given time. That satellite will share its information with the other satellites that you can see or will be able to see perhaps seconds later. So how fast is the Starlink Internet? Well, they're talking about data rates on the order of one gigabit per second, which is impressive. The only problem with all this is that with thousands of satellites in orbit, it's causing some heartburn for the astronomy community. How that plays out is kind of hard to see. At the moment, Elon Musk and his company are saying that they're going to have a thousand Starlink satellites in orbit by the end of this year. And they're talking about something on the order of seven to eight thousand of them in orbit within the next four to five years. Now, SpaceX isn't the only player, incidentally, in this game. There are some others. There's a company called Telesat. There's another one called OneWeb. And there's Project Kuiper, which is the Amazon company. Now, I don't know what this says for the business model, but OneWeb filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in March, so they may be out of the game. There's been no information forthcoming from SpaceX at the moment about how much it will cost you to subscribe to Starlink. I've heard figures touted of, say, $80 a month. Not too bad. It's going to be interesting to see what impact Starlink and other satellite networks like it will have on the amateur radio community. I could envision public service applications, for instance, where if you were to set up a Starlink ground station in the middle of a disaster area and then use amateur radio mesh networks to connect throughout the disaster area on the ground, that might be pretty cool, especially at high internet data rates. I'm on the telephone with Eric Knight, KB1EHE, and some of you longtime listeners might remember we spoke with Eric, oh, a couple of podcast episodes ago about RF treatments used for Alzheimer's disease and some of the work that he's been involved with. And Eric's back this time uh, also for something rather medical after a fashion. And that is that, well, how would you describe it, Eric? It's called folding at home. Is that correct? Yeah, folding at home. And it sounds like an origami project, but it's not. It's actually something in, in a way that many of us can team up to uh, treat COVID-19. Okay, and hams are especially well-suited for this because, as you may know, Eric, I'm sure you do, hams, uh, by and large, as a subset of the population, own a tremendous number of computers. In fact, I remember, oh, it was a couple of years ago, we did a survey of ARRL members, 
and discovered that over 90% had computers in their home and were connected to the Internet. And some of these people were using fairly sophisticated computers in their stations, too, with a fair amount of number-crunching power. So we're, again, well-positioned to do this. Boy, boy, that's perfect. Well, let me give a little overview. That's great context, and it, it fits right in. So the Folding at Home Project, it, it's run by Stanford University, and uh, they sum it up by on their website by saying the project uses computers from all over the world connected through the Internet to simulate protein folding. And it says by modeling protein folding, we are speeding the search for pharmaceutical treatments to COVID-19 that will weaken the virus's ability to attack the human immune system. Now, regarding protein folding, I had to learn about this a bit. And I'm not a biologist, but what I've learned that the process in which proteins get their shape, kind of a three-dimensional ribbon, is called protein folding. And the scientists are looking for ways to stop that folding or prevent it from latching on and invading cells in the body. But that's about the depth that I know. Now, regarding the computers, which is perfect here, it's I've read that simulating protein folding, say on your ordinary computer, even a relatively fast, sophisticated home computer, would take 500 years per simulation. Whoa. Obviously, that's a long time. <laughs> Obviously, scientists and all of us need results right now, right? So, so the folks at Stanford have established the Folding at Home Network to mesh lots and lots of computers together. It's called distributed computing, and that's been around for decades and applied to all sorts of scientific challenges, you know, climate modeling and astronomy and physics. But for the current problem, COVID-19, they're looking for treatments like antivirals to, uh, for those infected with the disease or maybe a medicine that would protect us all from the disease in the first place. So this is where all the computers that we all are working with come in. There are more than a million PCs right now, PCs, Macs, laptops, Linux machines, you name it, all connected in this distributed computer network. And the network uses the idle time or unused kind of clock cycles of these devices to create a truly massive virtual supercomputer for scientists searching for a treatment to COVID-19. So far, so good. What, uh, what are your thoughts there? Oh, yeah. In fact, you know what reminds me, Eric, of uh, SETI at home? I think that's still yeah. ongoing, isn't it? Yes, that was a real popular uh, distributed computing uh, project. So it uses the exact same platform. We're just now refocusing that massive supercomputer platform to the, the challenge with COVID-19. Now, a couple of weeks ago, there were less than half as many computers in the network around I think it was around 400,000. This is about two weeks ago. And even so, the virtual folding at home supercomputer was providing scientists, and this is where it gets staggering, with twice the processing power of the world's fastest supercomputer. And that's the Summit supercomputer built by IBM at the Oak Ridge National Labs. So just to put that in context, I had to wrap my head around this, that the Summit supercomputer is comprised of 220,000 CPUs, plus 88 million GPUs, or graphic processing units. So literally tens of millions of units all working together and in tandem. And along, they're all processing together, and that Summit supercomputer can do 200 quadrillion calculations every second. And a quadrillion is what? One followed by 15 zeros. So that's a really big number. So we're talking 200 quadrillion calculations per second 
with the Summit supercomputer and the virtual folding at home supercomputer with millions of PCs from citizens around the world has already exceeded twice what the Summit can do two weeks ago. And I'm sure with a million computers in the network now, it's many multiples over that, over, over the Summit. So really just a staggering amount of computer power that, that volunteers from all over the world, um, providing a little clock cycle time with their laptops are pitching in for scientists to tap into. And it's easy to do. I remember I participated in SETI at home, and it was a matter of simply downloading a program that just remained resident on your computer. And as you say, when you weren't using your computer, then it would use it, and then it would upload to the Internet. And I assume that uh, folding at home is basically the same thing. It's spot on. It's identical. The setup is really a breeze from, you know, I timed myself in the first installation. I'm running on a few machines now, but from downloading the small piece of software to installing it to getting it running took me less than five minutes. And I'm, you know, and that was on my ordinary laptop that was across the room here. And it doesn't perfect the, affect the performance at all. As, it, as you said, it completely turns itself off when you're using the machine. I let it run all night, so that's probably when it's making its biggest contributions to the network. But you can turn it on and off at any time, too, with a click. So it's it really is an easy install, and uh, and it can run on just about any laptop or PC made in the last 20 years. I originally thought that it was going to require some heavy-duty horsepower to make a contribution. But the, the on their website, they're talking about any Windows machine that uh, going back 20 years, with a, as long as it has a at least an Intel P4 chip or an equivalent AMD chip, and the P4 came out like in 2000, so 20 years ago. So if you can, and even on the Mac side of the world, uh, it'll run on OS 10.6 and later, and that came out in 2009, and it runs on all sorts of Linux flavors as well. So really, uh, anyone can just grab an old laptop in the closet, fire it up, and contribute to the research in literally just minutes. And if you could imagine all of the hams around the world, those who listen to this podcast, who have computers, and sometimes more than one computer, uh, could download the client and they would be up and running in minutes. It's actually even fun to watch. I have it sitting across the room here and it's it's processing these tasks. So as you watch it, it's, uh, the network, the folding at home network, randomly assigns processing tasks or these chunks of tasks called work units across the network. And the tasks just automatically run until they're completed. Then the computer gets another task, and it's all automatic. So as I'm looking right now across, let me just swivel here and look across the table to my laptop. My laptop says it is currently chewing on a work unit called Project 14,412, and the description says, this project simulates the COVID-19 polymerase, which is responsible for duplicating the COVID-19 genome during infection, this simulation will focus on identifying druggable pockets on the protein surface. So that's what my little laptop is working on for some scientists or some team of scientists somewhere in the world, somewhere in the world right now. So I think that's pretty neat. Now, you mentioned teams, um, and somebody else did too. With this project, can there be teams? Can you and, say, a group of friends collaborate as a team to do this? Absolutely. That's, that makes it even adds a, almost a contesting uh, factor to this. You can create a name for your team, and each person, when they install their software, it asks for a name of a team. If you use the same name, the same uh, team name, and each one is given as you name a team a uh, little code number, it's if each person puts that into their computer during the setup, everybody's working together, and there's scores that are being kept on the uh, 
uh, Stanford's uh, website. So you can see how teams are competing each other. You actually get points. So it's not much different than any of our contests. And so it adds a, a bit of contesting that we all uh, love here at Ham Radio, too. And uh, I, I just it's just icing on the cake. We're contributing to science, and we're having a little fun uh, competing as well. So, uh, so exactly, Steve. Oh, that's great. Now, for people listening, uh, where do they need to go, Eric, to download the client, install it, and so on? Is there a URL? Yes, it's uh, it's called it's at foldingathome.org. So f o l d i n g a t h o m e dot org, foldingathome.org. It's a really nice page set up, and it also has links to uh, all the various. Uh, uh, software uh, platform downloads for whatever operating system. Nice description. Uh, it's it's uh, it's really well laid out uh, by uh, Stanford University. And if I can just wrap up, uh, it's just a, just a, just an overarching thought why this is I, I think really important. Uh, you know, as hands, we're all hardwired to help the community in times of crisis. Kind of our fundamental nature, and I think this fits right in. And and it's rare, maybe unique that ordinary citizens can fundamentally and directly help with scientific research, particularly on the medical front. And here we have a disease, COVID-19, this uh, novel coronavirus that can then affects every human on earth. No one has any immunity. And thanks to folding at home, we can all go into battle together and assist scientists to come up with treatments for everyone on the planet. So I just can't imagine a better use of technology or the internet. I agree. That's perfect. Thanks, Eric. Okay. Thank you. You have a good day now. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time. <laughs>